Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Well, this morning, as we move our way through from grumbling to grateful, um, I believe is how he's named this. The book is named A Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks, but that kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit more for grumbling to grateful. We're going to be talking about the theology of gratitude, which what better topic for a, a heavy theology, loving of God's word kind of church, right? Like this ought to just get you all kinds of fired up um, this morning. The theology of gratitude, what in the world could that be? He kicks off this chapter which, with an illustration that I think is actually really helpful, so I'm going to share it with you. He talks about the difference between being a practitioner of something, so something that you really practice day in and day out, and then somebody who's maybe just a, a novice on, on it. You just do it from time to time, but it really isn't a part of your life. And for him, he was making some observations of some friends of his that they were avid hikers. Is anybody a hiker in here? We don't get that as much in Indiana. Uh, two people, yeah. See, if we were in like Seattle or Colorado or something, I'm sure that probably would have struck home a lot more. So for me, the illustration is sports, or as my wife calls it, sports ball. Um, just any kind of athletics, right? I, I, I love a lot of sports, have a couple of teams in particular, for better or worse, that I'm a fan of. But all of us have hobbies, right? Things that are a daily part of the fabric of our lives. Um, and there's a big difference between somebody who practices something very, very regularly, right? And then somebody who just maybe does it every once in a grand while. Um, those who don't do it all the time, like the hiker, you'd be far less prepared, far less educated in the ways of hiking, or maybe even had to do it in a safe way. Right? He even made the observations of those who hiked on a very, very regular basis. They had special equipment for it. Right? There's even special shoes. What are the brand of the shoes? I'm thinking of something. I can't. Does anybody know? There's two hikers. Which one of you two knows what kind of shoes you get? I don't know. Merrill. There you go. See? There you go. Uh, you go to a Starbucks, you'll probably find somebody who likes to hike and has those shoes on, more than likely. Um, but there's a special kind of clothing that you would wear, right, to participate in it. There's even people who get cars, specifically for camping, right? You can like put a tent on some of them I've seen. Um, I mean, it's incredible the amount of a person's life that'll get immersed in something, right? When it's a daily part of their life. And you can think of all different kinds of things, you know, guys with sports and the, the, they'll wear shirts and jerseys and completely get sold out. They'll build their schedule around watching their favorite team's game, right? Literally their life becomes wrapped around this thing. So much so that if somebody were to be describing that individual, they might even bring up that hobby, right? They are a Chiefs fan through and through, right? Or Walden, Notre Dame, right? All the way, right? That is literally how you would partly describe that individual because they've become so immersed in the culture of that thing that it is literally, it characterizes them now. This is your first blank. For those of you who love to fill in blanks, here you go. Here's your chance. There is a gap between doing something sporadically and it being such a steady part of your life that it characterizes you. There is a gap. Oh, yeah, I have slides. Woo! There is a gap between something that you do sporadically and it being such a steady part of your life, it characterizes you. Something becoming a part of the daily fabric of our lives takes time and practice. It doesn't just happen unintentionally, at least not if it's something good. 
There are things that can unintentionally become a part of the daily fabric of our life, but we're probably not going to like them because that means that they have to move with the tide of this world. And anything that easily becomes a part of our life, rather than it being a hard-fought thing to become part of our life, more than likely means it's full of worldliness in our flesh. And so if we want something to become a part of our life that happens any way other than unintentional, it's going to take time, effort, and quite frankly, God's grace more than anything. Um, We need God's grace. We need to keep in step with the Spirit of God and then intentionally and methodically take steps to see true, lasting change in our life. And the same is absolutely true when it comes to gratitude and thanksgiving in our life. This is when practice, next, this is when practice of something becomes actually a daily posture of your life. This is when the practice of something actually becomes the posture of your life. It's just how someone would characterize you. When they think of you, they think of joy, gratitude, thanksgiving. I bet you can think of folks in your life that are that way. Colton Allen. Anybody remember Colton Allen? Holy smokes. Just a joyful. You know, I remember Colton before he was Colton. (laughs) He was not that way. And the grace of God changed him, changed him. Now when you think of him, he is a joyful, characterized person, full of joy, full of thankfulness, gratitude when he meets with other-centeredness. It just gives life. It gives life. Well, what is it that we're loving? I mean, it's Christ. We We are sensing Christ in that person. So our goal for today is to look at how God has revealed this posture of gratitude and thankfulness in his word. And then most importantly, what truly is, what is the theology of thanksgiving? Before we start, it'd be helpful to look at some specific instances in God's word of thanksgiving in scripture uh, to help us consider, uh, think of a couple of big epic moments. Um, One in particular, a big epic moment, think of Noah and the ark. What is the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? Builds an altar. Noah, right, walking with the Lord, the world has gone its own way, every man doing what? As he only pleases, only doing evil continually. God's ready to wipe the dish, but sees Noah, finds Noah finds favor, and God is going to spare him. He has provided this way for he and his family to be spared and to not just continue and to live, but to thrive. That God is providing everything that they're going to need, whether that be the grain or the animals to replenish the world so that they can start over in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And the first thing Noah does after God acts in time and space in an incredible way to bless him, but obviously it's not limited to him. God is doing something even bigger than that. But God has clearly blessed Noah. How does Noah respond? He responds in gratitude. He responds in worship and builds an altar. Another example that I thought of was the 10 lepers in Luke 17. You remember that? Jesus is going on his way, going throughout his ministry, and there's 10 lepers at a distance because, of course, they're taught. They're not allowed to go near folks, but rather stay at a distance, shout unclean, and they shout at Christ, have mercy on us, heal us. And he just tells them to go to the priests, present themselves to the priests, because as is the pattern back then, that to be declared clean and to no longer be a pariah to society, they had to present themselves to the priests, right, once they were clean, and the priests would declare them clean. 
And I found it interesting that it said, I don't know if you've ever read this, we won't have time to specifically turn there this morning, but Jesus just tells them to go to the priests. And they're not clean right away. It's as they're going. Yes, as they're going, they realize, oh, they've been made clean. But how many go back? One. Only one goes back. Only one goes back to thank Christ. So as they're going, they're cleansed. One of them notices. He goes back, falls on his face, worships, and thanks Christ for making him clean. And of course, Christ's response, it's very telling, is it not? Where are the other nine? Where, Where are the other nine? There's some observations we can take from that. First and foremost, that obviously being grateful is not something that comes natural to us. I mean, nine of the ten didn't come back. Literally, think about this for a moment. They were given a death sentence. Ten out of ten of those men were plagued with something that had no way of being healed in that day and time. They were given a terminal life sentence. Shout at a man from a distance that they may have known or not known very well, but at least had hope that he could physically heal them. And he changed their life. One out of ten went back to say thank you. One out of ten. Gratefulness is not something that comes naturally to the lost man or woman, clearly, and not for any of us. Gratitude also is something that therefore has to be cultivated and supernaturally developed in us, right? Has to be cultivated and supernaturally developed in us. It is part of the image of God coming out of us, but that only happens through something supernatural, So these are obviously just a couple of examples that we see in Scripture of thanksgiving rightfully happening when God has acted on someone's behalf to bless them, to act in their life, right? But it's obviously not limited to this. To see thankfulness more fully in Scripture, we need to not only see it expressed for what God has done in our lives, but for who He is, We can't only be grateful to God when he's done something for us, but rather gratefulness, thankfulness, worship out of, stir up out of us just for acknowledging and seeing God for who he is and his splendor and glory. If you think about it, true selfless worship actually starts there because if we're just thankful for what God has done in our life, that's really not too much different than pretty much every single one of my kids' birthdays. (laughs) I don't know. Anybody's had a kid who's gotten presents, you know, for Christmas or for their birthday, they are so fired up for that gift, but not necessarily thankful towards the gift giver. And of course, it's my selfishness. Of course, I want to be thanked and I want to be worshiped like, dad, you're the best. Thank you so much for this gift, right? But they're just thankful for the gift, not always really thankful for the gift giver, my goodness, do I not see myself and my toddler little kids all the time, the deep ingratitude in my life that God has given me so many wonderful things and I'm just thankful for the things and not him, the gift giver who gave me those things. When God acts in our life, when God acts in time and space, it's, revel- it's relevant, <laughs> easy for me to say, revelatory. Holy smokes. There you go. Revelatory. It reveals about him and who he is. When God acts, it reveals more about his character and nature. It's easy to not think about it this way because when we think about other people's actions, it's not always the case. 
lot of times it can reveal. Somebody gives you a really thoughtful gift, and it might be revealing, right? Like, wow, that was incredibly thoughtful, right? Or they must love me so much. Or maybe it teaches you a little bit of how sacrificial that person is because it came at a great personal cost, right? And so them giving you that gift actually literally taught you something about them. Like, wow, I didn't know they could be that sacrificial. But we don't always take it that far, or we don't always take that as gospel truth, and why? Because people change. And maybe that was true about them then, but maybe that won't always be the case. Maybe they get worse. Maybe they get corrupt. Or maybe it's for the better, right? Maybe somebody did something that taught you a lot about who they are in a very negative way, but there's hope for change. People grow, right? It's not the case, though, with our God. That can really corrupt our view of people doing things in time and space, teaching us about them, right? And it can, and it very much does, but we forget that we have a God who does not change. He does not change. For I, the Lord God, Malachi 3, 6, do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, are not consumed. Or Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. So when we read about God doing something in time and space, him, him saving, him delivering, the same truths that we learn about God thousands of years ago are still true about God today. They still reveal to us wonderful things about his character and nature that we can still be led to awe and worship of. And we can have confidence that that has never changed and will never ever change. When God acts in time and space, there's no hidden agenda. We don't have to worry about that because he is immutable and he never, ever changes. When God set his love on you in eternity past, you do not have to worry about that changing. Ephesians chapter one, why? Because when he set his love on you, it didn't have anything to do with you. It had everything to do with his loving kindness Think of Titus 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Why? Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, no, but according to his own mercy. According to his own character and nature and decision, he saved you. We love because he first loved us, 1 John. God's attributes are perceived through his actions. You learn more, it's revelatory. The two are completely tethered together. So pure thanksgiving might begin with God's blessings in our lives, but it was never meant to stop there. As you hold your child at night and they're crying, <laughs> you're not getting any sleep and you're exhausted, but there's that moment of gratefulness. Let that gratefulness tilt your head back in awe and thanksgiving to God and worship and to be grateful to him. As you're cooking dinner and you catch a glimpse of your spouse on the other side of the kitchen working their tail off to serve others and you're just reminded of the decades of faithfulness that God has given you in this wonderful gift of a spouse, allow that not to stop at the thankfulness for the gift but to push your heart to the gift giver and let that lead to thanks and wonder and worship to God. When you sit in that chair right where you are right now on a baptism Sunday. Are those not just the best stinking Sundays, by the way? I mean, they are fantastic. It's my favorite week. I find out it's a baptism Sunday. I'm like always so fired up. Why? Because you get to hear about God's grace 
and someone else's life. And often I'm set there thinking there, but by the grace of God go wise. I listened to their testimony before they came to know Christ. Let that lead you to worship. Don't just stop. Let that take you to worship and gratitude and thanksgiving to the gift giver. God's majesty is on page 40 of the book. It's your next little fill in there. God's majesty evokes awe in us and must come out of us in praise and thanksgiving. And this does not have to be limited to the moments where we see God doing something in our life. Once again, it's not limited to when God is just blessing us or we perceive that God is blessing us. We have an opportunity to grow in thanksgiving towards God every time we're reminded about any kind of truth about him, his character and his nature. Think of general revelation, Romans chapter 1, that God's invisible attributes, his divine character, his eternal nature have been clearly seen in the things that have been made. Just yesterday, Denise and I are driving home, and there's just this beautiful sunset, orange and red and yellows, and it just reminds you of the amazing creativity and creative nature of our God. Let that draw you to worship. Let that draw you to thanksgiving in your God. As you observe the vastly different strengths of a coworker, which sometimes could lead to jealousy or feeling threatened, let that draw you to worship. That God, in his triune nature, his complementary nature in himself, we were made in his image in that way to complement one another in the body of Christ. And let that draw you to worship and praise God. Thank you, God, that you've made people with administrative gifts that could print my notes because I couldn't figure out how to do it this morning. Thank you, Kathy Snyder. Goodness gracious. Praise God. Right? We need each other. Some of us are just that crooked little pinky toe on the foot, and we need the big toe. That's me, crooked little pinky toe. I have crooked pinky toes. That's a developmental gene trait. We got a doctor in the house? That's a thing. Mike Doc Hobb knows. It's dominant. It's not recessive, so there's no getting rid of it. My kids all have it. But it should draw you to worship as you see that in others, right? Totally off my notes. Woo! This is when practicing something, though, becomes a posture of your life, and it begins to characterize you, right? Where thankfulness begins to characterize us. So we want to be growing in a posture of thanksgiving to God. And you can't help but grow in more selflessness if your eyes are constantly focused on God. Isn't that interesting? There was a pastor who once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking about yourself less. You just don't even come to mind because you're so focused on others and so focused on the enjoyment and gratefulness to God that you just kind of fall out of your own focus altogether. Is that not the most life-giving wonderful character of God in a person you know when you're just in that person's presence and it just lifts you up because that person had nothing to do with that entire interaction because they were so focused on you or building you up or encouraging you. That is the character of God that you're seeing in that person, the selflessness that God has in himself. Spending more time focused on God and who he is gets our eyes off of ourselves where they tend to dwell all too much. I know where mine tend to dwell all too much. Now, if you were to do a word search for the word thanks or thanksgiving, it would be far too limited uh, of, of a swath to be able to get all the times in Scripture that God is talking about gratitude and thanksgiving throughout his word. Um, we were to cut it way, way short. 
Um, and so let's look at some of those examples in Scripture real quick is what we're going to do. I love the way he puts it in the chapter here. Page 41, the author says, But like the sun tucked behind clouds, Thanksgiving looms nearby even where we don't notice it. <laughs> A family of Thanksgiving words with different names all belong in the same house. So you could look throughout God's word for praise, bless, glory, the verb version of glory, exalt, exalt, confess, acknowledge, rejoice. All these really carry the same ideas depending on context in Scripture of, of being thankful and grateful and worshipful towards God. And they increase our understanding of what God is getting at when we look at these greater amount of instances in God's Word. Here's just a couple to show how thanksgiving and some of these other words are constantly tied together in Scripture, and you'll see it all throughout. So first is, I don't know if I made that big enough for you guys, Psalm 35, 18, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. You see it? Thanks, praise, tied together. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Thanks, praise, bless, all tied together. They sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, Ezra. Right, so praise, thanks, connected throughout Scripture often. Really, they're saying the same thing. They're leading to the same thing. Um, it's connected in God's Word. As the author puts it, these things ripple out of us at the same time, and one often leads to the other because they reside in us. Or as Christ put it himself, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's Matthew 12. Same thing happens with thanksgiving and rejoicing. Thanksgiving and rejoicing. Rejoicing is to take joy in something, but it's joy infused with gratitude. So it can't just stop at joy. You can't just find joy in something and stop there. It's got to lead to gratitude to Christ, or there's something very dangerous that looms. We'll talk about that in a second. He uses a, a Dr. Pepper illustration. I think it's pretty appropriate. I Try not to drink much soda, though I fail uh, sometimes, like all the time. Um, but I grew up in the South, and I really like sweet tea, so it's just as good of an illustration. Any Dr. Pepper soda drinkers in the house, no one will judge you. Mike Schaus's hand went up so stinking fast. <laughs> diet Dr. Pepper, I'm about to hate on your diet, Dr. Pepper. Any sweet tea drinkers? I grew up in the South. I love me some sweet tea. Yeah, you cook it in the windowsill, let the sun do that. That's God's tea right there. That is good. But if you take sugar out of sweet tea or you take sugar out of Dr. Pepper, is it the same? No, it's blasphemy is what it is. Uh, it's, it's straight heresy. It's tea pretending to be sweet tea. No, 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 no. It ain't the same thing at all, right? It tastes completely different. Literally, you've changed the chemicals of the substance, right? And of course, he loved diet, right? But if you were to put regular sugar in your diet Dr. Pepper and take out the saccharin, that fake heresy, you know, sweetener, it wouldn't taste the same, right? It would be a totally different experience. Take gratitude out of joy. It's not joy. It's idolatry. It's on the precipice of idolatry, and we have to be so careful with that. Rejoicing and joy are interconnected. You cannot have one without the other. If there's something in life that gives us joy, it absolutely has to lead to thanksgiving and worship 
to God or we, on the, or we are on the precipice of something incredibly dangerous. This is why in 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminds us, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks, joy, gratefulness, attached in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As I mentioned before, gratefulness and joy, they ought to lead together, they go together. You don't stop at the gift, you go to the gift giver with your gratefulness. We're not only thankful for the gifts, we're more thankful for Christ, for God who gave the gift. The gift teaches us more about them too, so it ought to lead us to more appreciation, acknowledgement of that individual, and namely of, of God more than any. When you regularly take joy in something in life, take the time and opportunity to thank God for that something in your life. He is the greater object of your joy. You'll find even more joy by being grateful and finding the joy in him than in the thing he gave you because the thing he gave you will not last. It's temporary. It's not forever like him. And more so to acknowledge God, that is the greater final object of our joy and worship, is it not? To stop at finding our ultimate joy and gratitude in God, if we stop short of that, that is the path to idolatry. Think of all the wonderful gifts God has given you in your life. A spouse, children, a career, job, income, whatever it might be. If we try to find our ultimate eternal satisfaction and joy in those things, that's idolatry. To find joy in something and for it not to commence fully in God is the path to idolatry because we begin to worship that thing. Matter of fact, worship carries with it the Old Testament connotation of to place the full weight of one's life on it. If you place the full weight of your hopes and dreams and expectations on your children, I see it at the ball field every time we have some kind of sport, something for my kids. You ever seen those parents vicariously living through their kids? They are crushing that relationship with that child, are they not? They are destroying their relationship with their child. Why? Because they're using their child and their accomplishments as a means to worship themselves and they are crushing them. They're crushing them. Think of anybody who is way too invested into a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and trying to find their ultimate hopes and joys in that relationship. They will do nothing but crush that person and themselves in the process because they're not finding their ultimate joy and satisfaction in Christ. It's not leading them just to gratitude back to Christ and being content with that, with what it is, which is subservient and second to their relationship with God. And now they crush it because they've tried to deify it and turn it into God. We can do that with so many things. Every single gift that God gives us, which is meant to be a good, wonderful gift, meaning leading us to more and more praise and worship of him and thanksgiving towards him. If we're too focused on his hands, we will miss his face. We'll miss worshiping him. Miss the whole point. The whole point. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always. That's why we can't forget. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? This is God's will for you in your life. It protects you from idolatry and keeps your heart and focus on him. So when you find joy in something, let that lead you to gratitude and thankfulness to God. Let it lead you to worship. Because to do anything less is really the beginning of the path to idolatry. It really, really is. So an appropriate study of thanksgiving not only investigates the words that have the idea of thanks in them, 
but also examines the practices of these things throughout the Bible. So we're just going to look at a few of these. Um, what's this next slide? Oh, can't jump ahead too much. Okay, so here's a few, and there's tons of different feasts and festivals in the Old Testament, of course, with God's people um, in the Old Testament. But let's just look at a few of um, the different practices that will teach us even about Thanksgiving. Um, so some of the feasts and festivals, for starter, that God gave his people, first and foremost, think of Passover. It's one of the easiest ones that many of us have probably learned of. Passover. What a wonderful reminder to God's people of God's forbearing grace. They had to sacrifice a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, and put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost. And this is, of course, before Israel, right, has been freed from Egypt's captivity of them as they are in bondage. And the marking of that sacrifice over the doorpost for every Jewish family was the blood of the sacrificial lamb that allowed for the curse of death that was coming for the every firstborn son to pass over, that's the name, pass over, and not take that child's life. And of course, the firstborn son was spared for each and every single one of those families that had the blood that covered their family and protected them. But this same terrible plague that took the life of the firstborn son for all of the pagan Egyptians that were far off and did not know God, that was finally what it took to set Israel free. Slaves made free by the sacrifice of a firstborn son and not having to pay that penalty themselves by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. What a wonderful reminder that God gave his people. Or how about the festival of booths? A reminder to God's people of after they were freed from Egypt, right, and they're wandering in the wilderness and they had no home, how God provided for them in that time, that he was their provider and their protector. The soles of their shoes did not wander or did not wear out over all those years. How in the world did that happen? Their bellies never went hungry as God provided them manna and everything that they needed day by day, literally making water split out of rocks at times. Day by day, God led them. Pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. Fought himself for them as he destroyed Egypt as they came back to try to take them captive once again and even running out the Canaanites as he gave them the land of promise in Canaan, right? Land of milk and honey. But more importantly than that gift, the true gift was it was meant to be a place where God would dwell with his people. You will be my people. I will be your God. It was a stewardship given to them that they had to steward well. And if they didn't, they would lose it, which is why Denise and I named our first son Canaan, because we felt like there was a lot of parallels to parenting and having a kid and the stewardship that was given to Israel, and it could be taken away. If you don't steward it well, you will lose it. What a gift that God was giving them, and what a neat reminder that God gave to his people back then. There's also the festival of first fruits, right? As the harvest was coming in, what were they supposed to give God? Their first and their best. As a reminder that God was the one who gave us all of this abundance in the first place, so we give him our first and our best. And it's gratitude, it's thanksgiving to God, and it's showing our dependence upon God that we're not gonna store it up for ourselves. No, we can trust that we can give God our first and our best because he gave us all this in the first place. It's the festival of first fruits. And 
Then in the book, he made a point to point out Leviticus 7, 1, or 11 to 38. Don't feel like you have to turn there. The peace offering. And within that peace offering, it included a thanksgiving offering. Here are the description of the thanksgiving offering. And tell me this does not sound like one of our own holidays. It was an offering that was not tied to a time, a holiday, or event. That part's different from us. But that's significant for this peace offering that God commanded them to. It was not tied to a holiday, time, or event like the other ones that we just talked about. Rather, it was to be offered up free will at any time as one was compelled to do so out of the free will and overflow of gratitude in their heart. They were commanded to practice this. And the offering was not given to a priest, but rather the offering was to be eaten personally by the worshiper, worshiper themselves which means they would have been gathering people together because they never would have been able to eat it all themselves. And they would have been literally a meal of thanksgiving and worship and gratitude to God. Sounds a lot like Thanksgiving. Just need some turkey and some gravy and some mashed potatoes. We're good to go. This last offering provides a very key component to our understanding of what God intends for us in our growing in gratitude and thanksgiving towards him. He desires for it to be an overflow of our hearts, not simply a religious practice and thing, something we do from just November 30th or December 25th or Easter, whatever it might be. It's something that should happen organically and naturally all the time as our hearts are stirred up to do so, and we're just thankful. We struggle with gratitude. We're going to land on this. We struggle with gratitude when we feel we deserve something, but it has wrongfully been withheld. Let me emphasize a word when we feel we deserve something and we feel like it has been wrongfully withheld. We perceive it to be that way. And it's in those moments that I often struggle with not being grateful, right? But maybe a grumbler. <laughs> not grateful, but a grumbler. One of the means and really the chief means of moving from grumbling to grateful is truly rooted in theology. We've looked at a lot of great examples and things that are helpful but I think there's one chief means rooted in theology to truly move from grumbling to grateful every day in our life, that it characterizes us. And our problem isn't that we shouldn't focus on what has been withheld. Our problem, I think, is that we're focused on the wrong thing that has been withheld. We need to focus on what truly, really has been withheld. We were created for a personal and intimate relationship with the God of the world. And when God created the world, he was not a clockmaker who just created his world and took a step back. He didn't just say, let there be, and then that was it. He entered into his creation. He desired for us to be fully known and fully loved. The God who said a myriad of times throughout his word, over and over again, it's a theme of scripture, I will be their God and they will be my people. God of the universe wants an intimate relationship for us and with us. It's what he made us for. The God who fought for his people as Israel was running from Egypt and they saw Egypt coming to literally destroy them. This is the most powerful nation in the world, by the way. I mean, insurmountable odds. They are absolutely, inequivocally, absolutely going to be destroyed. And Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never 
see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be silent. Get out the way. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be silent. This is the God whom you were created for, to have a relationship with. I will be your God. You will be my people. And each and every single one of us have committed cosmic treason against him. We've all gone our own way. We've all strayed and pursued our own desires and aims. We've all thrown this relationship aside because we want to be God. We want to go our own way. Or as the poet once put it, we want to be masters of our own fate, captains of our own souls. God puts it this way in his word. No one is righteous. No, not even one. All have turned aside and together have turned away and become as one who is worthless. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one seeks me. No one understands. Their mouths are full of venom. The consequences of this treason is death, not physical death only, spiritual, eternal death. And what would seem to be worst of all (laughs) in my nature is I'd want to do something about it. And there's not a darn thing any of us can do about it. Not a thing that any of us can do about it because God demands absolute moral perfection. Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And God isn't wrong to have this demand over our life. If he were to lower his criteria, would God be God? Would heaven be heaven if he let you and me in in our imperfection? Absolutely not. He's not wrong to hold this absolute moral standard to have a right relationship with him. He can't lower his standards any more than a good and loving parent can stand aside and allow one of their children to go down a path that they know is going to destroy them, right? So what do we do? We step in. We provide for them. We take care of them. We protect them from whatever they're doing that's going to harm them themselves. If they can't afford it, we buy it for them. We feed them. We clothe them. We protect them. We nourish them. Why? Because we love them. So we pay for it ourselves. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be silent. We have to get out of our own way. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He paid for it. He did it. Because we could not. Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law because we could not do so. And God didn't have to lower his standards. He just fulfilled them himself. And the Lord Jesus Christ sent his son to perfectly obey the law and then die for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Your biggest problem has been solved. How can you and I ever be ungrateful? When you stand at the foot of the cross, there is no such thing as ungratitude. Every problem is insignificant in the shadow of the cross, is it not? There is no such thing as being unthankful. There's only such a thing as being a practical atheist and forgetting the gospel. It's when we forget the gospel that we become ungrateful. It's when we forget the gospel that we forget the gift giver and get focused on the gift. The gospel is the theology of thanksgiving. The theology of thanksgiving is the cross of Christ. 
When you remember Christ and you're focused on the gospel day in and day out, the practice of thanksgiving becomes your posture. You are literally changed from the DNA, from the inside out, as God's spirit now dwells in you. And the things he loves, you love. And the things you used to love, you no longer love. This is why Paul was flummoxed by himself in Romans chapter 7. The things I do are not what I want to do, and the very things I don't want to do is what I do. God was changing him from a grumbler to someone who was grateful. He was changing his very character and nature because God's nature has now been infused in him. It's been infused in you. It's been infused in me. Joy now has to go with gratitude. We cannot help it because we love our God. And the gospel is the theology of thanksgiving. It starts and ends at the foot of the cross. And as you and I bask daily in God's word, and enjoying him and remembering Christ and learning more about who God is and his character and his nature. Every day we'll be growing in our thanksgiving. Every day we won't be able but to help but see God in everyday life. As you go to work and you're reminded of this incredible opportunity to provide for your family, you will be grateful to God that he has given you this job to provide for your family. And then you'll remember, oh yeah, I have a family. God has given me a family. I'm so thankful for this family that God has given me, that I can provide for. That, by the way, he gave me the means to provide for them. And, oh, yeah, I wouldn't have this family if I didn't have this incredible wife. Thank you, God, for this wife that I have, that I love, and that takes care of me and makes sure that my shorts match my shirt because I didn't know how to do that this morning. Thank you, Lord. Everything in your life becomes an opportunity for thanksgiving and praise, but it starts at the foot of the cross. It starts at remembering every single day your biggest problem has been solved. Everything else is absolutely, utterly insignificant in the face of that. That is how a grumbler goes from grateful. May God make it so in all of our lives.